From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. And I'm your co-host, Raji Budhar Agrawal. Our guest today is Andrew Humphreys. Andrew is a fourth-year Ph.D. student in our esteemed department, and he got his master's degree from it already. He has a wealth of experience in education, including a master's degree in that subject as well, and his bio page online says he is passionate about Socratic shared inquiry pedagogy, and honestly, who isn't? In addition to his exemplary intellect, Andrew also sports an exemplary beard and would likely be unrecognizable without it. Do you have any rivals for best beard in GMU Econ? I don't know, but uh, I I try to model my my look on Carl Menger. Okay, that's... It's, it's actually not an intentional, but uh, once it was pointed out to me, I I was not unhappy about that. <laughs> there that are likeness. worse. There are worse people to look like for sure. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're gonna talk about education, about teaching economics today, because that is your one of your biggest areas of expertise, and uh, I guess just started off by asking you why you're passionate about teaching economics in particular. Well, thank you. I, I want to say thank you for having me on first, and uh, I appreciate it. It's, it's a pleasure. Um, yes, I've been, uh, I've been a teacher for a long time. I actually, uh, before coming to George Mason University, I was a Montessori high school teacher for a few years. And as you said, I got my master's in education. During that time, it was a remote program from Endicott College. Um, then I also went to teach in India for a while. I taught political economy for these short weekend uh, seminars in India. I lived there for two years. And then I moved to Guatemala, and I was able to work in a university there called uh, Francisco Marroquin for a year in a liberal arts program. Um, so the question is, like, why economics, and why, why do I like teaching it? I love, I love learning, and I love helping people discover things and learn. There's, to me, little more gratifying than seeing people's eyes light up because they're getting something they're understanding something about themselves and the world and also there's a moral development that happens when people learn and they learn how to learn Um, there's a kind of empowerment in oneself and i love seeing people develop and helping them develop and learning alongside them Uh, why economics in particular i think economics was the thing that got me interested in everything in the first place (laughs) I was always a student who asked a lot of questions. Like in my math classes, I would always raise my hand and say, well, why is that so? And very often, my classes were not organized in a way that would enable me to get to the why. But I loved, I loved all the subjects. I loved physics and, and uh, chemistry and mathematics and those kinds of things. But at some point, um, a family friend gave me a book called The Incredible Bread Machine, and it was written in the 70s by a number of students. It was really um, very lively and interesting. And it was a combination of economics, especially from an Austrian economic point of view, and then ca- classical liberal and libertarian political philosophy. There were some Randians in there, some kind of Rothbardian uh, types. And I just got super hooked. And actually, one of the things that, that got me really interested right from the beginning was the, the Austrian theory of the business cycle. And uh, just to give you a kind of a brief overview of that idea if you're not familiar with it. The story was that the interest rate is a consequence of people's willingness to save, and its height discourages or encourages borrowing. And the notion is if people want to save for some future purposes, 
they increase the loanable funds by saving. That lowers the interest rate, and that encourages lending. Okay, round two. Let's say for some, in some way government is able to reduce the interest rate below this normal rate, below this natural rate. Then people will not, in fact, be saving more. People will borrow more because the interest rate is lower. And then there's a mismatching of people's plans to, to purchase in the future and people's investments in the future. And what amazed me was that without anyone's intending to create this coordination in a market, this interest rate comes about that coordinates this time structure of investment, time structure. Of, I'm sure there's lots of people who may never heard of economics before, and they think, this is not that. This is, this is just numbers and whatever. I was amazed at how people could come to be coordinated by an institution or set of institutions without their intention, and that it could be messed up if you, me- if you play with the institutions, if you play with the prices. And I just got really excited about that. Mm-hmm. And I looked around, and I thought, all of these people here don't know that this is happening. And I kind of know <laughs> it. And it was like a keyhole into a magical world that was already around. It was like an, an extra layer of existence. Um, it's like a, like a magic garden, you know? Like yeah. we're all walking through it, but you can't see it until you start putting on the glasses, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so economics was like a set of glasses that got me really excited that there was all this other stuff going on in the world. And it was really important, and it had these important consequences, like, for example, a Great Depression or a Great Recession. Can we, in fact, explain why these things happen? So I think the cool thing about economics, to, to kind of sum up, would be that it's theoretically really exciting and interesting in itself in helping you understand the world, and it also has these practical consequences. Kind of how do we, how do we stop this mass coordination that happens in recessions? Is that even possible? And how is it that we are able to coordinate and in any case, when there's no planner, and I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah, and uh, the way you tell it, it sounds really exciting, too. We should do this for, like, recruitment or something. Okay, great. <laughs> that, great. Was, that was very well done. Um, if I wasn't an econ major, I'd, I'd want to join. Uh, so which econ classes have you taught, um, and uh, which ones would you like to teach? Well, I, um, I taught Austrian economics in a summer course okay. first, right after getting the master's here. And then I taught uh, Introduction to Mathematical Economics. I taught uh, kind of an economics for the citizen class that's, that's called International Economic Policy. It's for how many, how, many people have taught, how many people have taught both Austrian economics and mathematical economics? I'm not sure. I don't think it's, I don't think it's as, as strange as, uh, as it might at first sound. Okay. It is the case that uh, Austrian economists prefer verbal reasoning more mm-hmm. often. And see a more limited role for mathematical theorizing and for for econometrics, but there's really not um, there's really not a gross contradiction between uh, an interest in mathematical economics and and Austrian economics. I think uh, maybe a lot of people who get interested in Austrian economics are more philosophical types, maybe like me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but mathematics can be a highly philosophical uh, enterprise if you approach it the right way. So I, I don't see that there's a lot of contradiction there. I would say that. Austrians are more critical of the idea that econometrics can develop theoretical relationships. Austrian economists would say that econometrics is part of history. It's part of the, the matter upon which you work. And, it, and econometrics can be very helpful in, in identifying magnitudes of effects or identifying the relevance of a theory. But that theory has to be developed somewhat separately from any particular experience. Do you want to segue this conversation into your reading lists from St. John's College? So um, 
I read that you went to St. John's for your education and then that you're interested in education. And it seems obvious to me that, you know, they have such a, such a fantastic reading list and really shapes like the kind of way you approach um, your whole learning process. And I'm interested in like how that was for you, how it's affected your teaching style. And Yeah, great. Actually, it's uh, hugely influential and, and in ways that I probably can't articulate at all, <laughs> let alone in a short amount of time. But um I started getting interested in, in education while in high school. I was actually illiterate until about the age of 15. I couldn't read. I basically could, could piece signs together slowly. Okay, I was really, really behind in, in terms of reading. And I came to the United States from England to uh, learn how to read effectively, to do well in school. And the person that I um, came to live with was taking his Montessori teacher's training at the time and reading a book by... Uh, a guy named Michael Strong called The Habit of Thought from Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice. And I was just really interested in it at the time. I, I, I kind of started becoming interested in how people learn and why people don't learn and what makes learning effective. I really enjoyed learning, but I had never learned to read, which is really weird. And then I was getting into reading. I was learning how to read, and I was enjoying it. And so I read this book by, by Michael Strong called The Habit of Thought, and he was a St. John's uh, alumnus, and he described the nature of the program while describing his vision of pedagogy, which is, which is one that invites people to think for themselves through, by means of reading great texts and working them out together and exploring them together. And so it made me want to go to St. John's. The nature of the St. John's education is that there are no um, required formal lectures. All the classes are dialogue-based. Uh, it's not just sitting around and talking. There's also demonstrating mathematical propositions, engaging in hands-on uh, experimentation, but the kind of the ethos is to try to get to the root of everything by asking questions about it and exploring it and understanding what its assumptions are and what its implications are. And uh, the program involves uh, four years of what's called seminar, which is philosophy, history. There's a little bit of economics. We read Smith and Marx. That's it. Um, there's also four years of, uh, of mathematics, which is mostly geometry, three years of laboratory science and a year of music, and four years of language, which is more or less a year and a half of ancient Greek, uh, about a year of kind of Middle English and, and Shakespeare. Uh, may, I don't know if these numbers are going to add up. Another year and a half, more or less, of uh, French for reading knowledge, and then some kind of modern English literature, poetry, and that kind of stuff. And it was so amazing. I loved it so much. And the intellectual excitement that I felt, the... the um, the way that it piqued my interest in the world and in myself and figuring out how to ask questions is definitely something I try to bring to my classes. And I've also kind of a, a caveat um, for, for everyone who's going to listen to anything we say about what I think about education. I've had the fortune of teaching in very small classes, and I've, I've, I don't have to deal with a lecture hall with hundreds of people in it. In fact, while I've been teaching here at, at uh, GMU as well, all my classes have been about 20 I, th I think my maximum class was 22, so 22 and fewer. So uh, it's definitely harder to do certain. The constraints may determine what's the best way to do certain kinds of things. But where I can, I try to get the students involved in demonstrating at the board, uh, talking to one another, asking questions of one another, and explaining things to one another. And I see my job in the classroom as, is as uh, creating a framework that will en enable them to know what, where we can go what needs to be done, but then it requiring them to learn the material to teach their peers and to do the best they can, and then to learn from one another in, the, in that process. 
Is that what you mean when when you say uh, that you're passionate about Socratic shared inquiry pedagogy? Is that what that means? Yeah. So um, Socratic, of course, refers to the ancient philosopher Socrates, who went around Greece, uh, especially Athens, just asking asking people questions about things. And um, he's famous for being wise in that he knew what he didn't know. So the, the story goes that his friend told him that the oracle at Delphi told him that Socrates was the wisest man in Athens. And Socrates says, that can't be true. I don't know anything. <laughs> but a pious respect to the gods and to the oracle requires that I go and see if this is true, and, and, and if so, in what respect. So he goes around asking people who think they're wise questions. And all these people who say, I know X, Y, or Z. They profess to know these things. And by asking them questions and follow-up questions, it comes, becomes clear to anyone who's really paying attention that these people don't know what they think they know. And so Socrates would walk away and say, well, they don't know, but they think they know. Whereas I don't know, and at least I know that I do not know, and in this respect I am wiser than, than they are. He wasn't just a jack... I don't know if I could say that on the radio. He wasn't just a jack... Beep. Okay. <laughs> but I think that one of the great things that can happen is that if someone recognizes that they don't know something, it can have... It creates this opportunity for the possibility that they want to learn about that thing. And you can't actually want to know about anything that you aren't in some way aware that you don't know it. So... A huge part of what it makes what makes a Socratic education a Socratic education is that through some process it reveals to people their ignorance, not in a way that's in any that's that's demeaning, or that pres, that supposes that the teacher knows and the student doesn't know, uh, and that's where the shared inquiry part of that comes about. That in many cases, what people call Socratic method is um, a trickery, whereby a teacher has certain things in mind. But instead of telling the students in kind of the most economical way, um, wants them to come to a definite predetermined conclusion that they already have in mind by means of question asking. And that can be demeaning sometimes. Uh, it can be fun if, you, if it's a game and you, you're interested in doing that. But sometimes you just wonder, why the heck are we doing this? You know, why don't you just tell me what it is you want me to say? You know? But the shared inquiry is, let's find out what we really don't know, what's interesting about this thing, and then let's collaboratively, you and I go about trying to understand those things. Um, and dialogue is the means by which we can do that collectively. We need to be able to voice what we understand and listen to others and know how to make sense of what other people are saying and make ourselves make sense to other people. And uh, so that's, that's where those words, I guess how those come about, Socratic shared inquiry, dialogue, pedagogy being the kind of the method or... or or, or theory of learning or how we can learn? Uh, I guess there are two threads that I want to pull on. Um, the first one would be, well, so economics is like, it's not gospel. You're not teaching people things that they can just take. And I think like with the Socratic method, you have like the flexibility for people to sort of discover it, ask questions, and sort of get with the flow of like, oh, economics is a live field and you're going to invent things. And the whole part of like, oh, you're generators of this field. Um, how's it? How's that experience for students? How often does that resonate with students? Um, how do you know they're just trying to guess at a theory and guess what the teacher thinks versus um, actually think about a question? How do you present a question so that it becomes obvious to them? Those are great questions. And I think it's, 
you're absolutely right that in many cases people treat education too much as a kind of an attempt to give pre-digested information from one mind to another, which is, is really not exciting. When we, I think we really value learning most often when it's in a, some way a discovery. Even if we're discovering something that others have discovered, when we discover something, something becomes apparent to us after seeking for it, it becomes our own in some, in some way. But there's also a genuine possibility of discovering things that have not been thought or not known through an open-ended process. Um, not all knowledge is... I mean, the, the way that schooling is generally set up creates a presumption, a kind of a tacit presupposition in the mind of a many people and in their student life that knowledge is a flow from on high to below, right? It's like somehow someone has it, and then I get it by kind of opening my mind, and then you pour it into me. But that creates uh, infinite regress. How did the first person get it? So how do we come to know things? If, if we are always listening to other people tell us stuff, we might not think about that, that problem. And that's like a contrast between knowledge and skill, right? Like education can be about knowledge or it can be developing skills. Well, it can be about kind of non-skill knowledge, kind of like factual knowledge mm-hmm. uh, or factual belief. I mean, it becomes, that, that starts to raise the question about what the difference is between true belief and knowledge um, and when we know that our beliefs are correct or not, mm-hmm. um, which raises all the question of kind of justifying our belief. And that's one of the things you do in a Socratic environment is you start revealing your beliefs to one another and you see where your beliefs do or do not conform to the evidence at hand and you can help one another become more... Uh, make one's opinions more in line with the evidence. You can kind of learn how to reason with the evidence at hand and see how different people are thinking about things to kind of reason better. I think we, we definitely learn from experience, but some but we can also learn by working on our frameworks for understanding. And you can think about this as like an, one, one classic example of this is the Copernican Revolution. So a lot of people... Um, might think, you know what led from thinking we had that the earth was at the center to the sun was at the center was some development in measurement, that we had better measurements. And that's actually not what happened early on. What happened early on is that Copernicus thought that the Ptolemaic system had become too ugly. It was too unwieldy and ugly. And so he created a more elegant and more beautiful theory. And it was actually at odds with the the natural sciences at the time, which was Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of um, cognitive dissonance that was created by the Ptolemaic system. Copernicus said, you know what? If we put the sun at the center, it's just so much more elegant and more beautiful. And other people said, yeah, so it must be true. And that's set about Galileo and others trying to prove that some of the things in the Aristotelian physics were wrong to conform to the theory. And then data kind of followed this, these paths. And I think that relates to economics, too. So economic theory is developed by, by thinking through certain principles and relationships and the validity of certain models, independent of any particular experience. And we can actually learn by understanding what it's like to be a human being, kind of what it's like to act as a human being, what it's like to engage in exchange, and then build up compositively theories about how systems work from, from that point of view. And then the empirical part is 
has is the theory or the model we've come up with relevant to the world we're actually in. But I don't think you can really develop, at least in the most basic sense, theory by looking merely at data. You have to have a theory that helps you organize the data. So you were just talking about the Copernican revolution. So in the sense of like um, Kuhnian paradigm shift. So like in economics, um, how would you generate a new story? Like um, you gave an example of like how Copernicus thought about it. How do you come about the intuition that a new story is to be generated when you've already been exposed to and like a story has been drilled into you? And also, how do you train students to become that capable? Oh, that's a great. That's a, how do we do it? I mean, I, I think I don't know how to. Um, I don't think we how if we can make it happen, mm -hmm. but we can create environments in which possibilities are voiced. And where people learn to pay attention when new things are thought or new possibilities are put on the table and then try to take them at face value or, or try to get inside them. And this is one of the things of a, that a liberal arts education does is that it shows you possibilities of thought. Mm -hmm. And I think a good Socratic environment, you, you learn to sympathize with different paradigms and move from one to another and see how kind of how did it happen between Ptolemy and Copernicus? And then maybe that might help us when we're in our own boxes, mm -hmm. look for ways in which we can go from one box to another. And let me note one thing. I, I really want to plug Michael Strong's book, The Habit of Thought. <laughs> okay. um, one of the chapters he has in there relates to this question of how is it that dialogue can lead to learning? It's not a new, it, di talking about something and analyzing the logic of something is not the same as having a new experience. So when we're sitting down to, to talk about something, in some way we're working on how we interpret or make sense of the experiences that are available to all of us already. And one example that he gives is um, uh, Einstein. Famously, he had, a, he had a paper on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. This is, his, this is where his special relativity paper comes about in, in the, the 1905. And it's literally a meditation on what it means for two things to happen at the same time. What does it mean that if lightning strikes two locations, that that happens at the same time? And everyone just said, you know what it means? It means that it happens at the same time. It's a dumb question. We all know what it means. But by thinking through, well, what, it, what would it mean for me to know that they happen at the same time? Well, light, okay, we know that light travels at a constant velocity. So if I'm standing between them, then the light will reach me from either point at the same time if I'm equidistant from the two. But if I'm on a train traveling past one and the other... Wow, that means that the light from one gets to me before the light from the other. And that means that, there, that something that is simultaneous from one point of view is not simultaneous from another, a whole new way of looking at everything. And a whole bunch of uh, theoretical predictions come about that then lead to experiments that, that verify this. There is no new information that Einstein was using to revolutionize how we see things. But Einstein had a capacity to suspend prejudice that we we gain by our experience and by being told stuff and really trying to analyze it down to the base and be very honest about what he knew he knew. This is kind of a Socratic notion. I don't know what it means for something to be simultaneous. Other people think they do. Mm -hmm. And by asking those questions and thinking through them, you can come to new ways of thinking. And I try to do that in our economics classes. We, we try to figure out what is this model saying? What are its assumptions? Are these assumptions true or not? Are they useful or not? 
are those the same things? You know, any anything that can be a question is uh, is something that can poten- potentially be asked. And then uh, I have immense faith that if people know how to listen to one another and think carefully about what is going on in the environment, that discovery can happen. So can you tell when students have a light bulb go off, so to speak? Can you tell that that happens? And, and, and if so, how? And how do you know when students get it? A useful but not always accurate sign that they're getting the truth is that their light their eyes light up and sometimes they go oh or oh yeah or yeah or something there's some some kind of psychologically somehow our when something's going on our subconscious or in our mind very often there's a physical expression of those things maybe some people sit up what's really cool is when it happens to multiple people at the same time in the classroom and everyone's like "Ah." but you're absolutely right i think one of the things that is underappreciated is the importance of having an epistemology of learning. I'm going to, I don't want to sound pretentious. <laughs> what is our theory of knowing what's going, in on, what's going on in other people's minds? Very often, people think that because they have said something, the understanding that they have or are trying to convey is now in the minds of other people. And you, if you turn over to a questioning mode, you very quickly learn that people are really horrible at listening to one another, and they very often don't have some of the background that you presume they do. It could be vocabulary-wise, or it could be that they, they don't know what the example is you're talking about. And very often, on the other side, people don't reveal their ignorance because either they are afraid to reveal their ignorance, or they are unaware that they're ignorant. They are not used to asking can I, do I really know what this person is saying to me? And so it's really important for both the teacher and the student, which can be actually a reciprocal. If you're in a dialogue, you're both teacher and student at different moments. It's really important that both the teacher and the student have some idea or a theory of how you come to know whether communication has taken place or not and whether other people are understanding what you're saying or whether you're understanding what other people are saying. So a lot of the practice in, in, a, in a Socratic practice should be the follow-up question. So when the teacher says, does that make sense? Well, very often when there's no movement in the classroom, the teacher will still go on. <laughs> that makes sense to everybody? And there's like dead silence. Everyone could be dead. You know, literally like <laughs> they could just be frozen in place with no mental activity going on whatsoever. And then somehow the, ta- the talking continues. But even getting lots of active nods is insufficient to know whether knowledge has actually been achieved or learning has been achieved. So um, do you, does that make sense to you? And you nod and say, okay, could, yes. you, could you articulate back to me what you understood me to be saying? Very often people say, actually, no, I can't. I th- and that, that may reveal the, that uh, they were initially afraid to, to make it known that they were ignorant, of, you know, couldn't, couldn't understand or didn't understand. But it could be that sometimes... We tacitly feel like something makes sense when someone else says it, but it's not actually become our own. And so we don't have an articulate understanding of that. So asking people to echo back what they heard someone to say and then check in. Is that, does that accord with what you, were, what you were trying to say or not? On the other side of that, a rule that Mortimer Adler gives in his book, How to Read a Book, for identifying whether you understand something or not it, and on an articulate level is whether you can give um, an explanation or a definition or, or um, you know, say the same thing in your own words, in new words. Can you capture all the same meaning 
but in different words. Because sometimes people will repeat back the words. And that doesn't actually, a parrot can do that too, or a tape recorder can. So can you do it in your own words? Or can you come up with a unique example, a novel example of the same thing? And if you can't do that, then you, you've got to go back and say, I haven't yet understood this on an articulate level. Actually, there's a lot more to that. Maybe it'll come out what we're... But it's really important that there, there needs to be feedback. Has communication happened? Requires checking back. And if a student asks a teacher a question, sometimes the teacher will, quote-unquote, answer the question and then move on. No. If it matters. I mean, maybe you, you, it doesn't matter if learning's happening. And all that you want to do is say some things aloud in a room and hope maybe someone catches it. But if it matters whether, the, whether you've communicated, if a student asks a question... You've got to go back to the student. Yeah, this seems like a large pitch for like uh, bringing back the scholastic method of master and apprentice, where like they talk and then the student would write down, and then the master would be like, "Well, this is not what I meant," and you just keep doing graphs till you got what the master said. Um, yeah, I think it like served the purpose of like complete articulation and like bringing about as an object whatever was said, so that you can like play with it in all different angles, and presumably that's what we're looking for when we learn like anything. Talking, yeah, the, I, I like the way you said that. You're talking about there being an object that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's like that shared inquiry. In order for shared inquiry to be possible, there needs to be an object. It can be an abstract object that we're somehow looking at. Right. If you think about uh, maybe what how little little children learn about something, not just little children, but you think about if you're a teacher and there's a bug. And you say, hey, let's look at this bug. And then everyone gets close to the bug, and they're looking. And it's, what do you see? Well, oh, it's blue and shiny. And like, oh, it has, you know, how many legs does it have? Oh, it has six, you can count, and you see it has six legs, et cetera. There's a way in which everyone can look at it and bring something to the table about that bug. Abstract objects are really difficult because in some way they need to be held in common. But how do we make that happen? Well, we've got to do it via words, mm-hmm. but words alone don't m- make for shared meaning. So this is one of the reasons why you need to have shared meaning because you're trying to either identify or construct an object abstractly. One of the, another book I really like about education is uh, by a guy named Parker Palmer called The Courage to Teach. And he says that there's no, and this makes sense to me, he says there's no one way to teach. There's no one universal thing that is good teaching mm-hmm. and it can be very different for different individuals in different environments but he says something common to all good teaching is that the te- is that teaching makes the subject have an independent voice in the environment so i could tell you um there's this thing called the demand curve and the demand curve um it slopes upward you know so when the price goes up the quantity that people demand of the thing goes up. And you could have lots of students dutifully write this down and memorize it. And you could have tests where this positive relationship between between the price and the quantity demanded are tested for, and everyone can get the test right, and then we can walk away and we can call it economics. But is it possible for us to reveal something that has its own standards so that everyone in the room can say, wait, hold on, look at this aspect of what we're thinking about together and then potentially correct the teacher or even the, 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 the theory in the textbook. Does that make sense? So whatever, it is, whatever you're doing as a teacher, the subject itself should speak 
And, and that also means teaching and, uh, and helping people learn how to listen to the voice of the subject and how to find independent standards of verification and understanding of those relationships, independent of what anyone might happen to say about it, so that we can check ourselves and check one another. Mm-hmm. And for all of you listening, uh, Andrew knows that demand curve slope downward. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, I, I believe I know that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the what's the epistemology of you knowing that? Um, but yeah, I, it's um, it's certainly the case that from my experience anyway, classrooms are certainly a lot more interesting when when you make the subject a participant, and um, and there and it's certainly a way of learning that you don't always get and part of me thinks that because it's unusual sometimes that almost that also makes it makes it better because when you you have that kind of relief of that but what do you think about economics uh being is it do you find it to be different than teaching other subjects do you find anything fundamentally different about that or any unique challenges to economics as opposed to other subjects yeah i think every subject is different it's going to have different um different standards and challenges with regard to it um I really enjoy teaching math and mathematical economics, for example, not because I think that's necessarily the best way to get to, to everything that we can know about the economic reality, but it create mathematics when done well can create very clear standards for when you have and haven't understood something. So especially early on, um, I really think students should engage in learning mathematics Socratically. Not discovering everything anew, but really analyzing how it is that they know something or why it is these relationships are what they are. And this is very different from how a lot of people memorize relationships. How do I, how do, I do this? What's the next step? Is a very different question from what's true about this and how do I know? And what does it mean? Actually, that's a really important question. What does it mean? When someone really understands that they understand something mathematical, they have a standard of understanding that and and there's a pleasure that comes with that level of understanding and so you kind of know wow i actually can know things and not just believe things that i'm told mm-hmm. um subjects that have that quality are really important for creating the the conditions for learning standards of understanding and also wanting to understand other things in the future when i can do that that's really great when 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 the standards are less clear or it's more difficult to understand whether you've understood something, um, which is a lot of life, mm-hmm. uh, it, can be, it can be more difficult. Let me say something that actually relates to something I've said earlier. There are two kinds of um, excess when it comes to something you might call Socratic that are vices that I really detest. And I already mentioned one is where there's, it's not a genuinely open-ended question conversation where the teacher has a definite closed-ended goal in mind and they're trying to get people to it. The other vice extreme is when there are no standards in the conversation and it's just a, a just self-expression. I think this and I think that and people can say completely contradictory things to one another and even to themselves at different points in the conversation and then you kind of move on. And I there may be value in self-expression of that kind, but it's not what I'm talking about. It's really important that people um, come to recognize when what they're saying is in contradiction to one another. And then if it's important, we've got to figure it out. 
because either, depending on the nature of the contradiction, either one is correct and the other is incorrect, or maybe we're both incorrect. Mm -hmm. And then there's another correct way to th look at things. Or if, if you're saying something that's mutually contradictory, I think some part of the Socratic dialectic, part of the, the, the way you learn Socratically is by m when I think people become really uncomfortable normally, and they should, and this is really good for learning, when a contradiction is made plain to them, when they really see, because I don't think we can uh, sit comfortably with a contradiction within ourselves actively. And when we have that experience that there's this contradiction, that's what motivates us to try to get out of that contradiction. Well, which one's right and or neither? And how do I know? How do I figure it out? Oh, other people at the table have different points of view. There's evidence for point A or for point B. What's the better evidence? Um, so it's not closed-ended, and it's not anything goes. Reason must be an authority. The subject must be an authority. And if we're saying you know, mutually contradictory, mutually ex ex exclusive things about something, there's a way in which the subject isn't speaking to us. We're, we're making stuff up about the subject. Sure. Is economics, when you teach it, more like that, um, that mathematical discovery process, or is it... Is it different than that? And, and what makes it different than that, I guess? I think I always try to teach the same thing to new students, which is um, how, to, how to make sense of the written word and of symbols and how to articulate understanding and how to learn through listening and speaking with one another. And so at the moment, I'm teaching an intermediate microeconomics class. And in some respects, I feel beholden to prepare students for seeing certain uh, geometric models that they'll see in, in, in further classes because in some ways intermediate micro is a preparatory class to other kinds of specific learning that you might engage in. Plus you have to compete with Walter Williams for enrollment. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, and so I've been spending time having students learn the geometric models from Hirschleifer's textbook and they are invited to present them at the board. Actually, they have a study group. Um, and what I did is I gave everyone 5% extra credit if they met in a study group twice and went to the department tutor and got and, and, and presented sufficient evidence that they had done that. Um, and they've been continually meeting in that study group. So Because we only meet once a week. It's really hard to learn something, you know, two hours and 40 minutes once a week. Mm -hmm. um, so I have them come and present at the board and then... Um, the other students then have to be active to make sure that the person at the board is not leading people astray. So they have a job to do. It's like, oh, um, do I understand what's going on? And, uh, and then I ask questions about what's going on, especially questions that I think reveal things that people have not made explicit or may not have seen about these geometric things. But then we spend time talking about how the geometry does or does not relate to reality. Um, and, and I, but I won't say, hey, this is how it does or does not relate to reality. I'll ask questions about it to have people tell me how it does or does not relate to reality. And very often they'll say things that I hadn't considered before. So I, I can learn from the students as well because it is open-ended. Yeah. So earlier you were also talking about the other side of it where it's um, have I really understood it? Do I know where the idea exists or things like that? Um, so in math, I mean, people say like, oh, there was no math before Russell. Like Russell asked the first questions that allow us to do this kind of thing. And now you have like the reverse math program where you're like, oh, can I point at the axioms for this theorem to exist? Or model theory where you're like, oh, these structures are similar this way. 
Um, so you really understand when a model is presented to you what it means for it to exist, what are the limitations of it, what are similar things. How do you develop that in an economics class? Uh, and how do you import that mathematical intuition into your classes? I spend a, a lot. I, I don't believe that we should try to cover material mm -hmm. because covering often means that um, if, if we try to get through something, quote unquote, maybe no one learned anything. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't have standards for moving forward. Um, and there's trade-offs about going, you know, moving on versus spending time with the same thing. Um, and I don't really think that in a semester, meeting with people once a week, that they're going to get to everything that can be gotten. So really my, my hope is that they learn how to learn and that they're interested to keep learning. Mm -hmm. And maybe if they come away with puzzles, um, they'll keep thinking about them and know how to go about learning them. And if they're used to talking to other people as a way of learning, they're going to keep, keep learning, if that makes sense. Something I wanted to say earlier, and you kind of brought up mathematics again, math. Mathematics comes from this Greek word mathema, mathema, right, which is something knowable, something that you can really know that you know, the knowable thing. Right. And so I, I think some people might s listen to us, this conversation and be aghast and say, oh, you're, doing, you're doing Socratic stuff even maybe with mathematics? People could come to the wrong conclusion, and there's a right and a, there's a, right and a wrong in mathematics. You're, you're just kind of leaving people to their own devices. You're, you're abandoning them. And you know what they really need? They need to know, quote, unquote, what the right answer is. That is, they need to be able to repeat what the teacher knows or maybe repeat what the teacher is repeating from someone who's repeated it. Real, real knowledge of mathematics is when the subject has a voice that tells you when you're wrong, which is another way of saying that you know how to identify and correct your own errors and you know that you know it. We spoke on a previous episode of this podcast with John Murphy, whose peer pressure was essential, I think, to getting you to come on. So thanks, John. Shout out to you. Uh, we were speaking with him about the economic way of thinking and that phrase, and uh, I wonder what that phrase means to you and how you inculcate it in the classroom. That's great. Well, both in a specific sense and in a general sense, that, that phrase is very much associated with Paul Hain's textbook, which is now Hain... I don't remember if it's Hain, Prochitko, and Betke, or if it's Hain, Betke, and Prochitko. Um, but Hain did the first nine editions, and there have been several since uh, since he passed on. It's called The Economic Way of Thinking. Um, in, a, in a specific sense, he sets out what I call the fundamental presupposition of economics according to Hain. And I very often try to make this a mantra in the classroom so people do memorize this mantra, which is, According to Hain, the fundamental presupposition of economics is that all social phenomena arise from the actions and interactions of individuals making choices based on expected costs and benefits to themselves. So when we think in the economic way of thinking, what we're doing is we're trying to trace the phenomena on, that we're examining back to choices that individuals are making when they act or interact or both um, based on what to them or from their point of view are the expected costs and benefits. And if we can do that, then we're kind of in engaged in the explanation that is the economic way of thinking about these things. And then there are certain tools and, and logical uh, points of view that come out of it, doing this again and again that become a more elaborate toolkit for how to do that in different environments and about different institutional sets. And then kind of in general, 
what's really important is that the economic way of thinking is not memorizing various propositions, but getting into the subject once again. So uh, I, I always start my classes talking about um, Ludwig von Mises's idea that economics is a study of human action and that what distinguishes the social sciences and economics in particular from uh, the natural sciences is the notion that human beings act or engage in purposeful behavior and that uh, we can understand and empathize with human action or sympathize or, or, or understand. Uh, we, can we can understand it on a conceptual level and we can understand it on a concrete level what other people are doing. Um, and this is a different kind of knowledge than you have by looking at something externally. So everything we know about the physical world comes from observing what objects do in different circumstances. And the experiment, the notion of, a, of, a, of an experiment in the natural sciences is really isolating change so we can see how one thing responds to another when it is changed from the outside. Uh, so you can drop a ball, for example. You can drop a ball in, uh, in a vacuum. Then you can drop a feather in a vacuum. You know, and an anvil, a ball, and a feather in a vacuum, they all fall at the same rate, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and when we look at these objects, what we're looking at is their spatial properties, kind of what their shapes are and how they're related to one another and, and, and the, the qualities that appear to our physical senses, like their color and their smell and that kind of stuff. When we're dealing with human action, if we only dealt with kind of the mathematical properties of the outward bodies, we'd be missing knowledge. So why is it that uh, you know, someone is giving that, that piece of paper over there and that, then this, this other object, I don't know, it's a burrito, you know, it's going the other way. You could measure all of the spatial properties of all of those things and you wouldn't really know what's going on. You wouldn't understand what's going on. But when we come to understand what, um, what is motivating the people involved or what the categories are that they're engaged in, things like money and food, and we understand what the meaning of money is and the meaning of food and how someone is purposefully trying to acquire food and another person is trying to acquire money, we can start to understand what's going on. Right? So the economic way of thinking traces all social phenomena, that is everything that happens in society, that, has an, that appears in society, back to the purposeful behaviors that individuals are engaged in either independently or, in, or, or with one another. All right, I got uh, two last questions before you before we uh, wrap up here. Uh, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give to teachers of economics? If you had to give one piece of advice, what would it be? My go-to uh, is that the number one enemy of learning is pretense. And so the number one rule is no pretense. Because very often, it happens way too often, and... <laughs> I dare to say it might happen in the majority of cases that what happens in a classroom is that people are there to purchase a degree and maybe the teacher is there to to be in a position to do research or maybe even they care about the teaching. But in a majority of cases, either the teacher or the students or both are pretending that learning is happening. Mm -hmm. If the teacher is saying stuff and everyone is dead in the room, the teacher knows it. The teacher feels like, I feel uncomfortable that there's not real human interaction going on in this room. Mm -hmm. And yet I, I'm still talking. That's because I'm pretending. 
I'm pretending that this awkward situation isn't here, and I'm pretending to teach. And students are pretending to learn very often. We're, they, we're pretty good at it, too. Yeah, I don't want to be called <laughs> on. I don't want to really be held to the standards of learning. I don't, wanna, I, don't wanna be, I don't want my ignorance to be made known, or I don't want to work. There's some combination of fear and laziness. Um, and so it's really, 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 really important if you want learning to happen that you don't pretend that learning's happened. You really see if it's happening. You need to ask the right kinds of follow-up questions and check with the student and require them to articulate certain things or solve certain problems so that it is revealed to them and to you whether they're learning or not. Um, So just zero pretense. Zero, zero pretense. The caveat being that people are not merely rational animals and they're so used to a different kind of environment. Um... It's important that you don't in your rev- – I reveal my own ignorance all the time as a teacher. I tell people, I don't know. That's a really great, great question. Um, let's explore it. And then I'll say, how can, how can we explore it? Can we explore it from this point of view from that point of view? Um, because I want to model what learning looks like and what kind of this honesty looks like. But it's really important that you as a teacher create uh, an environment where the students have confidence that they're going to learn. And so you need to make sure that uh, you, but you portray confidence uh, and that you justify why you're doing what you're doing. If you just go into the room and say, I don't know, you know, and, oh, I'm totally lost and everyone's lost and I don't know how to proceed about this, um, then, then people are going to – there could be a revolt and people will get really afraid and like, I'm going to spend this entire semester learning nothing. Is this going to be a total mess? Um, so maybe maybe if if that's true about you, maybe you shouldn't be teaching the class. But so no pretense, and you have to be confident in your honesty, and you need to you need to justify that one can in fact learn, even where one has questions. So you just got to be honest, and no no pretense, and you have to instill confidence in the students because they have to they have to psychologically buy into the possibility that they will learn because learning involves faith it can't be a rational calculus it's part it's partly expected benefits and costs but some of that expected benefit it has to come on faith because you don't know what's going to happen in the future you don't know who this teacher person is you don't know what this material is you can't judge it for yourself so as a teacher you need to instill confidence and faith that they will learn something as well as no pretense just one final question for you you know you're clearly very passionate about this you're very knowledgeable on it that usually doesn't arise uh, just on its own, usually there's there's someone who um, who instilled that in you to a certain extent or an uh, interaction you had. Uh, who is the best teacher that you've had at any level? And uh, and if there's more than one, that's fine. But uh, who who are those people that uh, that grew this up in you? Hands down, and without hesitation, the best educator I've ever known is his name's Albert Lone. He was a mentor of mine. I never had him as a school teacher. Uh, but he was a family friend, and I moved from England to the United States to finish my last three years of high school, and I actually stayed with him. I lived with him in Houston while I was going to school. And uh, he both gave me books. It was amazing. He was a graduate of George Mason. He was an economics oh. student here in the 80s, and uh, I knew he knew economics, and I always begged him, please teach me economics. And he was an economics teacher at the time in another high school that I wasn't going to. And he would say, oh, Andrew, that's my day job. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I can't, 
I don't want to, I'm not going to tell you anything yet. So I always begged. I, he never gave me answers. He never taught me economics, but he would give me things to read. Okay. Read, you know, read this. And I, he had this beautiful library with all these like awesome books. And it was kind of like a forbidden fruit. And I would like sneak, sneak out at night and like take books off the shelves and like start reading this economic stuff that I was getting really excited about. And then if you caught me, it was like, you should be doing your homework. You know, <laughs> Um, it, but I feel I think it was like really calculative on some level. He kind of knows the <laughs> difference between telling people something and giving it to them too easily versus having them work for it. And he also kind of taught me to read. He taught me to read in, in both the basic sense of the phonetics. But when I came and he had been working with me for, for several years before this, uh, before I came when I was 16 to the U.S. But uh, I had to catch up on my mathematics. My math was OK. And I did math. Algebra 1, 2, and geometry, and a little bit of trigonometry in a year and a summer, in my first year of coming to the U.S. And what he did is he showed me how to read a math textbook. So he says, you're going to realize that this thing has been put together to help you learn the material, but you have to know how to use it. So let's look at it. So let's, let's, whenever you look at a new thing, you've got to flip through it and see what your first impressions are, see what stands out to you, what's in bold, what's, you know, what do you see, to kind of create categories in your mind. And then look at the beginning. It says this thing. It says subjective. And then it's got these bullet points here. So you, this is what you're to, supposed to learn. And if you are responsible for your own learning, you've got to make sure you understand what the objective is. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, you've got to go back and see, did I achieve the objective or not? And then how do I understand the objective? Well, are there phrases in the objective that you don't understand? Well, then write them down. So the, one of the objectives of this chapter is to learn how to, what, how to factor, da 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 or what factoring is. It's like, I don't know what factoring is, so I write down that, okay? Um, how to identify a definition in the text. When the, when the text is saying, this is this kind of thing, how do you make sense of a definition? Then how do you use it? How do you substitute things you've learned before, definitions, into words when you're getting lost? All those kinds of things. And so I spent a year learning how to read from math textbooks because he taught me this just this initial stage and then he left me to it <laughs> he taught me how to identify whether i understood what i understood and if i had achieved the objective or not um and that really helped my ability to comprehend what i what i've learned you know subsequently and that's i think a lot of what motivates me to try to help other people become independent learners learn from from words and symbols know how to do that and that includes the words and symbols that other people speak in their environment uh, whether they be teachers in a lecture or other students speaking to them. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here, Andrew. Thank you so much. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.